0: up to Charlotte tomorrow, as Charlie Gross mentioned, and this is my very first time to ever be in Charleston, other than just through on the highway or perhaps at the airport, but to actually be here in the city. What I want to talk to you about today, I think I had best introduce by saying, let's play a little game of let's pretend involving only three verses in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And I want to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation and look at verses 12 through 14 and play a little game of let's pretend. Now what I'd like us to pretend is that, first of all, there is a God. And when I say God, I do not mean a divinized Father figure. I do not mean a first cause or a principle of good or something that is good within humankind. I speak of a Creator God who put the sun in the heavens, that helium hydrogen process of a nuclear explosion that gives all of our earth for all of the time that man and all plants and animals have been upon it, every bit of its energy, which is only .2% of the energy that massive ball expends all the remainder being lost into outer space. When I talk about God, I talk about the designer and the architect of the human body, the designer and the architect of all insects, of amoeba of bacteria, of all the flora and fauna of this vast earth earth of ours, of tens of thousands of different kinds of plants, herbs, ferns, of vegetables, of trees, of everything that is here for man's use, for man's comfort and convenience, for man's building supplies. I talk about a creator, a lawgiver, a great supernatural being who by divine fiat one day said, let there be light, and there was light. A God who was able to make something out of nothing. As we now, through the nuclear process, can make something into nothing, so God was able to reach out as if with his own hands in the vastness of the universe that he had created. And since the hydrogen atom is the building block of all of matter that we can come to know of in the universe, Almighty God simply compacted matter together, atoms which are the smallest divisible particle, well, not really, because there are other tiny little particles, and even subparticles, to that building block of matter that we know of as electrons, neutrons, protons, of course, the nucleus of an atom, and then there are many, many little tiny electrical impulses, even smaller than those, but an atom cannot even be seen, has never been seen. They've only been invented, or let's say, uh, explained by man, not invented by the nuclear physicists and their experiments who have come to tell us a little bit about matter and perhaps even how it was made. Every atom is like a little universe. This microphone in front of me is made up of various metals. The wood that is beneath this carpeted podium can be converted into light, heat, gas, and ash. But if you could capture every bit of the light, the heat, and the energy that is given off, if we were to convert it to that by simply striking a match and making sure it burnt, we could regather, but in totally different shape and form, every last atom or molecule that is presently in this wood, or perhaps synthetics and fibers that are here in front of me that form a pulpit or a podium. You probably all read a little bit about the explosion of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima, of how a woman wearing a floral kimono was actually vaporized, and the pattern of her dress was indelibly placed in solid granite on a bridge over which she was walking when the nuclear explosion took place many, many feet in the air over her head. So even we, human beings, can be vaporized by a chain reaction called a nuclear explosion. Matter can be reduced to its essential elements and can become pure energy. I'm only saying that to just refresh our minds for a moment about God. Energy and matter are one and the same thing, just as space and time are one and the same thing. When we take a trip of 8,000 miles every night, when we roll our eyes up and stare at our brains and don't see all that much, as we all well know, we're quite unaware when we awaken in the morning that we have actually traveled 8,000 miles in respect to where the other bodies of the solar system are, and that we're actually taking a journey that's straight through from us 8,000 miles are people sitting comfortably in chairs like this, and they think they're on the top of the world. They're wrong. We are. But most of us do not think in those terms in a daily sense. We don't walk about this earth thinking of the world rolling away from the sun, we talk about the sun going down. We don't talk about out, we talk about up. We don't say away, we say up or down, instead of out and within. And we cannot divide a hundred in thirds, and we cannot explain many things like all or ever or nothing, because these are words that bang up against the limits of our intelligent comprehension of the environment around us, and we simply cannot cope. So we're going to pretend, with only three verses in the Bible, A, that the great, divine, all-wise, creator God, who put the entirety of the universe in place, really does exist. He's really out there, up there. Number two, we're going to pretend that this book in front of us is like a code book, like a secret code that was delivered to humankind many, many centuries ago, with certain limitations placed upon its understanding. But there are many cautions in this book, that it says that you must be very, very cautious about intruding into certain parts of it and trying to take your human mind and interpret or to insert your concepts or your thoughts into what God calls holy, because that would be like treading in very dangerous territory and might even cost you your eternal life. To this man will I look, he says in Isaiah 66, to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembles at my word. Other cautions are, to the law and the testimony, if they speak not according to this word it is because there is no light in them. Or another translation says, it is because nothing shall come to pass of what they say or the light will not dawn on what they say. Every scripture, said Paul, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for instruction in righteousness. And there are other cautions about the Bible. For example, in the twelfth chapter of Daniel, where after the lengthiest prophecy in all of the Bible, the eleventh chapter, the great archangel tells Daniel, who was wanting to know so badly, and he asks, what will be the end of all of these things? When will all this come to pass? And Daniel is told, go your way, Daniel, "...because it is sealed and closed until the time of the end, and many shall run to and fro, knowledge shall be increased, and so on, but this book is closed. It is sealed." Now, the book of Revelation is revealed to us, and the word revelation means to be revealed, not to be concealed. The Greek word apocalypse has nothing to do with an explosion. We think that an apocalypse merely means a cataclysmic explosion. Like apocalypse smell. It's ridiculous. The Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse merely means to reveal, as opposed to conceal. So the book of revealings is the book of Revelation, which was, which was sealed with seven seals. Because a scroll was unfolded gradually, unlike one of our books, where you can break a seal on it and then begin to open it, as they tell you in library class in high school, so you don't break the back of a book. But in a scroll you unrolled a portion of it, and then the remaining portion maybe six-sevenths of it was sealed, you broke that seal, and progressively we see a book that unfolds and reveals to our understanding a step-by-step, one-two-three, development of great world events, of global events, trends, and conditions leading up to a time that the Bible speaks of as the time of the end. Now, it's going to be amazing if we will play this game of let's pretend at how much information we can glean from only three verses in the Bible. So as a part of our scenario, let's say that we're now isolated on a desert island, and just the people in this room are here. We're out here on some little island in the South Pacific. We only have the barest means of survival. Not a single book has survived the shipwreck, but one tattered page of one part of the Bible, and the only three verses that are legible are verses 12, 13, and 14 of Revelation 17. That's all we've got. We don't have a clue about anything else in the Bible but these three verses, but we know these things, that God is up there, and we're on the earth, and that this is his word. Now, that's all we need to know, except that we're the people we are. We know about the United States. We know about Europe. We know about Asia and Africa and Japan. But we don't know anything about the Bible to speak of. Let's just read through the three verses we're talking about in our experiment for a moment, and we'll come back and see how much we can glean from every bit of these three verses. And the ten horns which you saw, we don't know what we saw because we didn't see anything, but it says that the man to whom this is being directed saw ten horns, apparently, are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. What beast? What is this beast? Well, we don't know yet. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's all we've got. Now, there would be those among us who, though we are not perhaps biblical scholars, prior to our shipwreck and our fragment of the scriptures, the only verses that we have now retained, would remember that the Lamb is Jesus Christ. And I doubt if we could get an argument, even if we represented Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, and Mormons in our shipwreck group, about whether or not the Lamb who shall overcome them, and who is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is Jesus Christ, of whom we've heard all of our lives. and whom we know is a central figure in the Bible and who is a central theme of the Gospels that we recall having been taught in Sunday school as a child. So we're armed with that much knowledge, working, let's say, backward from the last verse we read. We know that this king, this lamb, who is king of kings and lord of lords, who is going to overcome these people, is Christ. Now, let's go back to verse 12 and begin to read and see if we can come to understand what these three verses are trying to tell us. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. This is explanation, no mystery. A king is a king is a king. What is a king? Well, a king is an absolute monarch. A king is an absolute ruler. A king is, if you will, a dictator. He is the sole governor of a given nation or race or political entity. And we're familiar with the history of King Edward, or King John, or King Henry Eighth, or whatever. Uh, the king who was so oppressive that our American colonies broke away from him in a revolutionary war in the 1770s, and that our country owes its birth to the fact that there was a very oppressive king who was a one-man autocrat, a ruler, a monarch, who heavily taxed his subjects even across the seas, and ended up with some of his own colonies rebelling against his iron-fisted rule, because it was... In a sense, unfair, denied human rights, and so on. Ten Kings. Now it's obvious that a horn is a symbol, but then if we look about our island and we see various creatures running about, creatures like deer, elk, antelope, caribou, even a rhinoceros, are bedecked with great splendid antlers. And of course, trophy hunters love to go on safari to Africa to collect a sable or a kudu. Because they love to put those big beautiful antlers and spiral horns on the wall. They're quite a regal looking thing. Way back in ancient history, men used to dress their heads in the heads of animals. They used to either uh, skin out a zebra or perhaps a leopard or a lion, and some of the Africans would pull the fangs and a part of the skull and with the mane over their heads, and they would appear to be the African witch doctor wearing the mane of a lion. And it comes down to the days of the Vikings, when we would see men taking the horns off of cows or other animals and affixing them to metal helmets, because it looked very, very impressive. And from those early days of savages dressing themselves in the horns of animals as a headdress to show leadership, rulership, or the symbolism of the prowess, the ability, and the power of the animal, we come down to the military, peaked cap, and from the days of the jousting of ancient England and Germany, the Black Knight of Germany, who was six foot eight with an armor that is in the museum over there in the Tower of London that I have seen, from which we derived the military salute. When they were about to joust and lower the lance, they would take their portion of the metal helmet and they would reach up like this and it would clank into place and from that, as the days of military encounter went along, men began to take their hands and touch them to the bill of the cap. The Germans kind of perfected the art of making a man's cap, appear to be very intimidating, adding about seven or eight inches to his height putting a lot of gold or silver or double eagles or death's heads or, as we say, scrambled eggs or whatever on the cap, little acorns and gold oak leaves and all of that, looking very, very impressive. Well, ancient men wore horns on their heads. It's merely a symbol for a military dictator or a ruler or a king. Now these are a different kind of kings. Apparently they are not yet coronated. It says at the time that we're ushered into this verse, these have received no kingdom as yet. So whatever the time element is, at this moment when this prophecy was revealed and was put to writing materials, there wasn't any visible series of ten kings. They had not yet emerged, they hadn't yet appeared. But in the future at some time, they will receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, what is the power of a king? Well, we've talked about that. It's absolute economic power, military power, the power, even in many cases, as in the case of the Anglican Church, of whom Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen, is the titular head, that in most cases in ancient Europe, and even beyond that, the civil or the military ruler was at once the spiritual ruler or the head of the church. That was true in ancient England, where the kings of England were the spiritual head, and it still finds Uh, itself fulfilled in history in the person of Queen Elizabeth, who is the head of the Episcopalian or the Anglican Church, the Church of England. They receive power as kings. A king has the power to conscript, to tax, to expropriate property, to demand that the young men of the kingdom come into his army, to command that army to march to make war against an enemy. The power of a king is an absolute, unbridled, limitless power. These received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now, the beast, well, again, we're dealing with a symbol, and we don't know, but since we know this is God's word, obviously whatever this beast is, it is the symbol of some supranational government, isn't it? Because it is something that benefits in some way from ten autocratic absolute rulers giving their total industrial, economic, socioeconomic economic spiritual, moral, religious, all the rest of their power of the economy and the industry and the military strength of a nation into this beast, whatever that is. So the beast, whatever it is, is some kind of a conglomerate that means a great supranational government composed of at least ten kings. These have one mind, now that means one goal, one purpose, one point of view, one approach. It means basically one policy. They're all marching to the same tune. They're all marching the same step. They're all headed in the same direction. These ten have one mind and shall give their power and strength, again, economic and military, into or unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb. Now, the time element is very clear then. Because the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, is to overcome them and to become king of kings, deposing all of them, perhaps killing them, annihilating them, and supplanting them, and lord of lords. But it tells us something else. They that are with him, Christ has something, someone with him, are called and chosen and faithful. You're dealing with a divine person And you're dealing with perhaps countless millions of human persons, as well as another select group of individuals who are with Christ, who is going to be combated, fought, directly resisted by ten nations, when? Well, at the time, obviously, of his intervention in human affairs here below. Now the reason I'm saying, let's pretend, is just to show you how completely uncluttered, how simple, how straightforward is the Bible if you will just say, God is in heaven, and I'm on the earth, and the Bible is his word. And just wash out of your mind all of the foibles and the fables and the mistranslations and the childhood teachings and the old wives' tales and vanity or ego or the idea baby or the teachings of two dozen churches that you may have searched around through the literature for thirty or forty years, and all of the clutter. The books by everybody from Hal Lindsey to Dr. Graham on Countdown to Armageddon, and some people that say, Christ is here today, and on and on. All of this religiosity, religious hobbyist, religious background that people have, who will tell you all kinds of the strangest ideas about who is the beast. There are some people who think the beast is the United States of America. There's some people who think the mark of the beast is some kind of a striation on a plastic wrapper around the loaf of bread you get in the supermarket for the checkout clerk to merely keep track of inventory and how much the bread costs when the scanner keeps track of, of how much the bread is when you go to pay the check. They think that's the mark of the beast. There must be somebody watching me. And they're suspicious of two-way mirrors and TV cameras up there near the cash register. We've all heard a lot of theory about the past. But now I want to come down to reality and talk to you about what this scripture and others really mean. I want to go to the second chapter of the book of Daniel as I'm doing that. For thirty-three and one-half years now, I have been talking about the eventual creation of a United States of Europe, a United States of Europe. That is not a term that I invented. My father talked about it before me. I began to preach and became the main speaker and by 1958 the only speaker from 58 to 78 on the world tomorrow program both on radio and television the only time you ever heard my father if you did was because out of my own deference and respect to him i repeated endlessly his old 19 late 40s early 50s uh, programs on sunday only but i did all the other programs so that by the time of our parting in 1978 i had amassed probably five times his lifetime quota of radio and more, 10, 20 times the number of television programs my father did, which was only 26 up until that time where I had done literally thousands of them. I say that because there is a lot of misconception about background, but that's not an important part of what I want to talk about today. I began saying that a United States of Europe was going to emerge in 1955. I had read it in Sir Winston Churchill's memoirs. I had seen that some of those who understood that Adolf Hitler was trying to put together the dream of ancient German geopoliticians like Haushofer, Mackinder, and many others, and to create in the heartland of Europe, which was looked upon as the bastion of civilization, a United States of Europe, a vast trading combine, which would embody all of those industrial, energetic, inventive, ingenious people from the Urals to the Atlantic Wall, the Belgians, the Poles, the Czechs, the Italians, the Germans especially, the Dutch, all of these people, these great races of people, with the great vast wheat-growing areas, the breadbasket of Europe, as it was called, of Poland and a part of East Germany, with the industry of the Ruhr, the coal of the Tsar, with the inventiveness of these people who have given all of civilization so much. Hitler was like a false Christ, because Hitler was looked upon as a messiah, coming in at a time of deep poverty out of the Great Depression that struck the United States, and of course Europe as well, because Europe was in the backlash of the American collapse of the stock market in the 1929 period, and all of Europe was impoverished, which led directly to the rise of despots or dictators in the form of Mussolini in his black shirts, and Adolf Hitler in his brown shirts, and the great labor corps that took to the streets and began to build monuments and autobahns and so on in some of those impoverished countries. And as was always true, in world history, like the tired swinging of the pendulum, where disenchanted, disenfranchised, oftentimes hungry, cold, suffering, and disease-ridden populations blame the incumbent government. So they would tend to overthrow that government, look for a strong man, a dictator, somebody to cut through all the nonsense and the red tape, and put people back to work, give them jobs, give them national identity, give them national purpose, give them a collective vicarious national dream, give them a concept of statehood, of belonging. Hitler perfected the art of state worship, such as no human being who has ever lived, not Charlemagne, not Otto the Great, not Attila of the Hun, not any great despotic leader of the past, was able to so inspire an entire nation with the concept that we are the super race than Adolf Hitler. And to do so on the concept of racism protracted and made the more ugly, by what he said about every other race that he looked upon as inferior to the Germans, including the Slavs, especially the Slavs, especially the Mediterranean types, the Middle Eastern types, and particularly the Jews, but all other races who were not of the so-called Nordic area, and you investigate that term, it's nonsense anyway, but it was a term that he leapt upon and used throughout all of his career. Adolf Hitler was nothing more than a weak revival of a prophesied seven resurrections of an ancient Holy Roman Empire which was predicted to exist in the heartland of Europe from the time of the collapse of ancient Rome in 476 AD until the time of the second coming of Christ and the fulfillment of those verses we saw in Revelation 17 where ten kings are going to fight Christ at his coming. The most ancient reference to these ten is given in this dream Nebuchadnezzar dreamed one night over in the second chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel knew, verse 28, that there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets, and told the king that that was where he got his information, that God gave him what would be happening in the latter days, and began to tell, then, Nebuchadnezzar what he had seen. I'll skim through it a little quickly, you probably read it many times, verse 32, the image's head of gold represented ancient Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar at its head, a world-ruling empire having subjugated the entire known world of that so-called cradle of civilization of the Tigris Euphrates valley of ancient Sumeria and Babylonia and so on at that time his breast and his arms of silver and that was the Persian empire under Cyrus the Great and later the man that the Greeks called Artaxerxes or Darius and his arms of uh, his breast and his arms of silver his belly and his eyes of brass and that was the next successive world ruling empire of Alexander the Great That replaced Persia, Macedonia. His legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay, and that was the Roman Empire that tread underfoot wherever it went. He said, You saw till a stone was cut out without hands, as if perhaps almost supernaturally, and smote the image upon his feet, but each foot had five digits, so the feet had ten toes that were of iron and clay, and break them, the feet, To pieces. So logically, the entire image collapsed on its face, and the prophecy continues that it fell and was broken together, verse 35, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors in his mind's eye, in the vision, just like dust. A wind came along and just swept it away, and place was not found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, just seemed to grow in front of his eyes like a Paracutin in Mexico, a great mountain has emerged in a cornfield one day and is now one of the large smoking volcanic cones in the nation of Mexico, and all the whole earth. This is the dream, and now we'll tell the king the interpretation of it. Verse 37, Thou, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory, It talked about the fact that it was great, and wherever men were, and animals and birds and so on, they were under the largesse of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 38, the last part of it, thou art this head of gold. So therefore, king and kingdom are synonymous, aren't they? You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, but Nebuchadnezzar was synonymous for his kingdom. King and kingdom were the same thing. After thee, here's the proof, shall arise another kingdom, not just another general or dictator or king, but another kingdom inferior to thee. And actually, though history has told you differently, History tends to rewrite history and tells you that Rome was the superior one to all of them. No, it was the other way around. Actually, Babylon was the most superior, and then Persia a little less, and so on and so on to the time of Rome. Another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, was harder, stronger than silver or gold, and so on. As iron breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise," which is exactly what Rome did. Wherever Rome went, she destroyed. She burnt the library in Alexandria with over 200,000 clay volumes of cuneiform. She destroyed, we hear about the aqueducts that she built, but largely she destroyed other cultures and supplanted them with her own. And whereas you saw the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, and no one in his right mind in a foundry or a machine shop would pour into a sand mold, or a clay mold, iron, and mix it with clay, because it would be popping and blistering and all the moisture cooking out of it, and the iron would have all sorts of pock marks and holes, and it would be very, very weak and inferior, wouldn't it, if you had all of those contaminants mixed into a mold you poured out of iron. And whereas, as you saw, the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, a divided kingdom. Interesting language. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron. There's only one country in the history of the world that has been known as the Iron Country. Only one country who ever had a chancellor who was called the Iron Chancellor. Bismarck. Only one country who has ever decorated its heroes from its World War I aces to its World War II tank commanders under Guderian with the Iron Cross won by Adolf Hitler as a corporal when he was thrice wounded in the trenches in World War I. Strength of iron, For as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly, if you look in the margin, I have it here, it says brittle, but actually it's weak, ineffectual. The original Hebrew word means brittle or weak in the sense of being easily broken. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, ten toads, divided, one foot planted on one side, the other foot on the other side, five and five, makes ten in all, part of iron and part of clay. But iron is involved in the mixture. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, the ten, the ten toes, the last ten, not the first one, obviously, because you read of its it collapse. you read of the collapse and the supplanting of the second, the collapse and the supplanting of the third. But now you read, in the days of these kings, these ten, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." What a tremendous similarity between these verses and Revelation 17, 12-14 that we read about ten kings who will fight Christ at his coming, who will overcome them, and will set up a kingdom. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, of course, we're not restricted to just Daniel 2 or Revelation 17, but we have in front of us the entirety of the Bible, the Word of God. I have said for 33 and one half years there is coming in the heartland of Europe a United States of Europe. I have told audiences for over 25 years, 15,000 of them at a time, that they are going to see NATO collapse. They are going to see the Warsaw Pact come out from underneath the domination of the Soviet Union. They are going to see nations like Czechoslovakia, Poland, perhaps Hungary and Romania, but especially East Germany and Austria, with Germany once more reunited together formed together with some of the democracies of Northwestern Europe, notably Italy, as well as very likely the Benelux countries, and certainly you cannot rule out Spain. Ten nations in all, with perhaps other nations, numbering 12, 14, or 20, who knows, eventually, as there are 12 now in the common market, as a United States of Europe. I first used that language in perhaps 1954 55, well, 1957, 58, on the radio program, I was saying it continually. In the early 1960s, I preached about prophecy almost nonstop. It has been so long, such a protracted period of time, during which Europe has lain divided, with a divided city deep in the heart of a Soviet-dominated puppet state of East Germany, That is, West Berlin and the city of Berlin, east and west, divided by a great wall put up by man made of masonry and stone, 102 miles long, dividing a, a great city, the actual cultural spiritual capital of the German people. Hundreds have lost their lives trying to escape. We know they've sewn together everything from raincoats to make a balloon to float across to tunneling underneath and done everything they could. The only time in all of history we've ever seen a wall that has been built, instead of keeping an enemy out, to keep citizens inside. Who desperately wanted to come to freedom. Mark my words here in Charleston today. The last chapter of European history has not been written. Europe will not lie divided for another 45 years. The Europe of your grandchildren and mine will be a very, very different Europe indeed, and it does not bode well for the United States of America. I find it is particularly exciting almost frightening that within the last three weeks, three pieces of information have come into my possession. One from the International Affairs magazine, the other a week before last Tuesday on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and the third from the May 1987 edition of Europe magazine that I want to quote from in a moment. But first to remind you, in 1973, because I knew who is, or who will be, at least by office, if not personage, the great false prophet of biblical prophecy, and who will be, if not an individual person, at least by his office and probably race, the beast or the great military dictator of a ten-nation supranational government in Europe, who will very likely be a German. His name may be Franz Josef Strauss. When Cardinal Karol Wojtyla was elected pope several years ago, in about 1978 or nine, I remember saying to a very large audience that he will be catalytic to wresting Russian or Soviet control away from the nation of Poland eventually, and now on his recent visit, which we've heard practically nothing about in the American press, the visit to West Germany was practically buried on page 19 because everybody was so interested in Jim and Tammy, in Oral Roberts, uh, everybody was so interested in Gate. And the media is determined that Reagan lied. And so that's all you're going to hear for months and months and months. While the greatest things that have to do with the very future of our nation, our economy and everything else, trade war with the Japanese, rumblings of disenchantment from the NATO allies involving the placement of American intermediate-range missiles, the uh, not only Pershings but, of course, our cruise missiles and going at it in Geneva between the Soviets with their SS-18s and SS-20s, and Europe increasingly thinking maybe they're going to have to go it alone. All of these things buried on page 19 if they're in the paper at all. And so we simply do not read of it. But I told people then that since we now had a Polish pope, that I believed all the more strongly that in the lifetime of this man we're going to see an accord made with Eastern Europe with Western Europe. Most of you probably do not know that some of the major trading parties partners between East and West European countries are East and West Germany, for example, and Poland and West Germany. There are tremendous multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of supplies, commodities, materials, and so on, and goods that flow back and forth in truck convoys continually between these peoples. And of course, East German citizens sit and watch West German television every night, and it's only a direct dial telephone across the border. So even though the border physically is denied them so far as as except with a visitor's permit now and then for certain select people. There is a great deal of exchange back and forth. Why have I said there will come a United States of Europe? Several reasons. First of all, because I have known since I began to study history, study the Bible, study the call of Abraham, study all the other books and materials on it of which there is a plethora, not only my father's book entitled The United States and British Commonwealth in Prophecy, but Judas Scepter and Joseph Birthright, and many other books of which there are dozens involved, in showing you the origin of the Anglo-Saxon people, of where the American people, the original colonists and those who came flooding over here later as if they were in a holding ground in European nations, but who were part of Manasseh, even as we all know that Eisenhower, though it is a German name, he certainly was not a Germanic individual with Germanic tendencies or Germanic blood in his veins that was much of a Manassite as any of the people who say, well, I'm French, Irish, Scots, Dutch, or whatever they say they are in the United States of America. But once you understand where the lost sheep of the house of Israel went, you are armed with a tremendous key of information. But you don't need to know that to understand what we read in Revelation 17, verses 12 through 14. So don't let your mind go astray. Don't say to yourself, now, wait a minute. I don't believe that so-called British-Israel theory, therefore I'm not going to believe anything that is said here about a United States of Europe. Because, you see, I didn't get my concept about a United States of Europe out of a secret code, in a whistle, or a badge I found in a post office box. I did not get it out of a very obscure prophecy in Zechariah. I didn't get it out of a dream or a vision. No no uh, apparition appeared at the foot of my bed one night and told me about it. An angel didn't speak to me. I told a reporter up in Columbus the other day who called me on the telephone. She was asking why I believe some of these things where I got my ideas. I explained to her. I said, well, if I were an atheist, I would still believe in the eventual emergence of a United States of Europe. If I were an atheist, a skeptic, or an agnostic, I could not decry the Hudson Institute, the Club of Rome... The various think tanks, like Dr. Brown, whom I've interviewed, or Dr. Herman Kahn, who is, who is the president of the Hudson Institute, the think tank along the banks of the river, so named for that reason, in Washington, D.C. Nor the Club of Rome, with more than 100 nations sending credentialed scientists from agronomists, horticulturalists, agriculturalists, uh, chemists, physicians, nuclear physicists, to study, to take the temperature of the world, the globe in general. And what they do, just like a salesman coming to present to you or your corporate officers an insurance or a retirement plan, they will wheel up the tripod and the plastic overlays and have the pointer and start pointing out things. What they point out is this. The world in the next very few months is going to reach five billion in population. The world cannot support four and a half billion. The world is going to double again by about 2017, and double again by 2035, and double again by 2042. Will it really? No, of course not. But I don't want to go astray, so let me just say that they take each one of the major global trends that are affecting all of mankind, that cause things like food wars and the toppling of governments, and making nation after nation because of ferment in the government, endemic disease, poverty, malnutrition, joblessness, drought, and the like. Fair game for Soviet adventurism, as in the Horn of Africa, Angola, Afghanistan, Nicaragua, Cuba, which was overthrown because of the tyranny of a dictator and they leapt directly into the arms of yet another dictator wearing a different armband. And it's happened time and again down through history. So if I were to take my plastic overlay and I showed you, first of all, the food versus population curve, it goes throughout off the chart at about 2004 until it simply goes right out the top and bends over backward, and we know that we're headed for an absolute cataclysm, a catastrophe of such mind-boggling proportions no one can really understand it. Then I I superpose my next page atop that, and we look at the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Not only the growth of the arsenals of the big powers, but the fact there are up to 50 nations producing plutonium. The nations like Pakistan, India already has the bomb. But nations like Israel, who have had an arsenal of low-yield kiloton-range nuclear weapons since 1971, and threatened to use them, which is exactly why Nixon, during the Yom Kippur War, risked what he did, and brought about the Arab oil embargo by transshipping American military hardware from forward NATO bases inside Europe, which is exactly why OPEC also clamped down an embargo upon the Western European nations as well as the United States, because they were angry at Nixon because for the first time in all of history, spy satellite technology had revealed that the Israeli Third Army was being encircled at Suez. And Nixon knew he had to do something, or that time the Israelis were going to be beat, because the Egyptians had broached the Barlev line with hydraulic, high-power, high-pressure hoses, and actually gotten behind the Israelis. Our intelligence community knew it, passed it on to the Israelis, and of course, immediately, the American and the Soviet leadership began to meet. United Nations began to call for a ceasefire which was brought about. And from that time to this, the economy of the globe has changed as a direct result of the fact that Israel might have fulfilled its promise as voiced by a retired, now deceased Air Force general who was orbiting over the city of Jerusalem, talking in the ear of an American correspondent on one occasion about how tiny was their little nation, how narrow in the waist, how totally outnumbered and surrounded by hostile forces of the Arab nations who wanted the extermination of the Jewish people and to drive them into the sea. And he revealed in a subtle hint to that Western correspondent, by an analogy, a blinded old Samson, because he said, We will never, like sheep, quietly again march to the boxcars. Never again will the Jewish people quietly go to the death cells, the torture camps, the gas chambers, to the incinerators. No, never again. He said, instead, before that would ever happen to us, we will pull down the temple of humanity. That meant we will use nuclear weapons on Cairo and on Damascus and on major Middle Eastern capitals. And it was quite clear that the Israeli government has the capacity to do precisely that. South Africa has the bomb, secretly, in coordination, cooperation with them, so does West Germany. Brazil is making plutonium. India, as I said, exploded the bomb. China has the bomb. Many, many nations. Chances of nuclear uh, war by accident. Well, those are very great if you study NORAD, if you study all of it, SAC, and you understand how many alerts there are from anything from a cruise missile gone astray, which happened a few months ago, the uh, incredible problem of Chernobyl, a meltdown sometimes testing, which is mistaken for an actual overt act of one government or another. But then you would superpose over that global economic problems, superpose over that ecological disasters like acid rain, superpose over that the great hole of retreating or disappearing ozone over the Arctic Circle, where the melting of the polar ice cap is of great concern to scientists, who say that eventually if it does not stop, And apparently such damage has already been incurred to the ozone layer that it's not going to stop or be reversed. They claim that major ports, cities like New York, Los Angeles, London, etc., all over the world will be inundated. These are of global concern. The next overlay we would superpose on that is the disappearance within three more years of the great Mato Grosso of Brazil, the great huge rainforest practically the size of the United States of America that had been so ravaged by a resettlement uh, program of the government and backed by the IMF and the World Bank that they're sending people out there to try to farm acidic soil that never has any nutrient or nutritional value in the first place because the ecology of a rainforest is in its canopy, not on its forest floor. And they take down the big trees and the bulldozers come in and they try to resettle populations on infertile soil. And some of those people, if you've seen some of the recent television documentaries, are starving to death. And the people in the World Bank still justify themselves in what is called development, which is a word for the greed of money-hungry, egotistical politicians who want to get fat wallets and retire and live life wonderfully and so on, and don't care how much of the Earth's surface they ravage in doing it. Then we could superpose over that things we haven't even mentioned yet, like air, water, and solid pollution, like in Ratu and Kontiki and coming all the way out of the Mediterranean to the Brazilian shore. Thor Heyerdahl was not once, not one hour of the day out of sight of flotsam and jetsam, with everything from plastic bags to orange peels to tin cans across the broad Atlantic of the pollution of surface water that I have mentioned before, of mankind burying himself in mountains of garbage and trash, of the pollution of generations yet to come because of the disposal of toxic chemicals in hundreds of toxic waste sites in the United States that leach out in subsurface water and emerge as they did in Colorado to kill whole herds of sheep 40 miles away in the Rocky Mountains or the percolation of underwater streams and so on can actually carry toxic compounds underground in underwater streams in the aquifers 40 and more miles away. The depletion of those aquifers, the sinking of the California aquifer, so that the soil in the Central Valley has dropped by 22 feet in the last 30 years, and you can actually see the old telephone poles and you can compare the tremendous heightened salinity of the water coming up in the deep wells and the lack of it and the need to irrigate, irrigate, irrigate with the Feather River Project and all the rest of it in order to provide the water because of the depletion of the subterranean water of our nation. There'd be so many other things we could talk about. How about disease, endemic disease, the great diseases that have ravaged mankind in the past? And now we have a brand new one it has been bequeathed to us, and I'm assuming I'm talking to a heterosexual audience. If I'm not, I hope I burn your ears. It has been bequeathed to us by the rotten queers who are foisting now AIDS upon the entirety of the heterosexual community so that if one of these rotten idiots walks through the cafeteria line and sneezes on the lettuce, you can get AIDS. That's right. The virus will live. And they say, believe it or not, that one out of five Americans will have contracted AIDS by 2,000. How many years away is that? That's 20% of the population of our great country will have a plague like the bubonic plague or the black death of Europe and England in the Middle Ages by rotten, filthy sodomites who are bringing it into our nation and into the heterosexual community. Babies are being born with it because mom had to have a blood transfusion is mind-boggling I don't think I've seen a single news broadcast in the last six months but what AIDS has been mentioned I don't think I have picked up a single weekly news magazine without an article on AIDS it is frightening beyond belief now let's go back and just rehearse quickly what I've said I told the lady even if I was an atheist I would believe what I believe because I don't get my concepts about humankind coming to the brink of a lemming-like extinction by about 2004. I don't get those concepts out of some obscure passage in Zechariah that I have to understand in strange language, or the lost works of Ospe, or the book of Jude, or somewhere else, or some so-called part of the Bible that isn't in here. I get it from these very plain prophecies, and if you look at Rawlinson's five great empires, and the histories and the commentaries which will explain and expound almost word by word and verse by verse the 4th, the 7th and the 11th chapters of Daniel as they have come down to us through history the successive world ruling empires which I've mentioned in passing in Daniel 2 the fact that the ancient Roman Empire was to have several successive revivals the fact that the Adolf Hitler Mussolini period was nothing more than a very weak revival of the same system a holy Roman Empire in the heartland of Europe And the fact there is to come yet another end-time revival of that ten-nation combine of a supranational collection or conglomeration of nations in the same general area where that great system always resided at the very time of the intervention of Almighty God in human affairs at the time nearing the second coming of Jesus Christ. But there's more. Because... That great United States of Europe is going to be the death of us all, except perhaps a third and eventually a tenth of our population. That's the bad news. Now, when it first emerges, Americans almost en masse are going to hail the creation of the United States of Europe as a good thing, because they love us, those Germans. They love us Americans, don't they? If we had existed in the United States of America since 1945, with the Russians occupying the entire Atlantic seaboard, Atlantic coast, and all of our states to the Mississippi River, and the Germans occupying our country from the Mississippi to the west coast, how would we feel if we were in the middle ground where two great superpowers were constantly bristling at each other like a pair of mastiffs over a bone? And we're wondering at any moment when even their conventional forces are going to slice like a hot knife through butter with their superior tanks outnumbering NATO 3 to 1 from the Warsaw Pact and get all the way to the Normandy beaches from the Warsaw Pact boundaries in the central part of Europe in only three days as NATO commanders themselves project and wonder whether they would be able to stop any such conventional onslaught without the use of nuclear weapons, and everybody knows they couldn't. But if this had been the scenario where you were dwelling in the shadow of that potential nightmarish battle that could erupt at practically any time, for your entire lifetime. If you'd grown up with it, your young men are supposed to be cannon fodder for the Yankees. You're supposed to die, your nation is Hans uh, Stupendegel or whatever it is, and you're 17, a young German athlete, and you want to get into the rowing club at maybe Bremen or uh, Bremerhaven University. Instead, you're talking about being inducted into the armed forces. What is your attitude? What is the attitude of the German people toward the United States of America? Let me tell you, it's about 80 or 90 percent anti-American. Very virulently so. They're learning their history. The United States of America is fat, dumb, and happy. We are proud and we are spoiled. We think Rambo went back over there after the ignominious departure of the last people, falling out of the open hatches of the final departing helicopter from the U.S. Embassy compound, and won the war for us. We don't understand that we lost in Vietnam and lost miserably, that we lost in Korea. The only bright spot in two or three decades has been Grenada. How about the Bay of Pigs disaster, the Gary Powell incident? How about the Pueblo? Do you remember the Pueblo? It's still over there. We don't have it. Have you watched some of the Senate testimony, the uh, Senate Select Committee testimony of McFarland? Do you hear Congress trying to lash him and whipping, saying, We know better, and we set the law, and we're constant? You people were trying to get around our congressional law. Do you hear him lashing Congress, trying to teach them, educate them, spank them a little bit with his mouth to tell them what a pack of idiots they are? What is there about the American Congress that makes them so determined they are going to have a communist government in Nicaragua or know the reason why? What is there about our American Congress that is determined to prevent any overthrow of the Sandinista government. I don't quite understand why that is so, but it is. Now, if you take a look at this world the way it truly is today, at the way the German people have been taught history, at the fact that there is a whole new generation of young German people over there who are not really convicted or convinced that Hitler ever burnt a single Jew, and for all the fact that there is a very great anti-Nazi hysteria inside of Western Europe, And to a larger extent, the Germans of today are being taught a little more about that era, the Hitlerian era, than they were in the 60s, and certainly than they were in the 50s, when the Germans themselves took over the denazification program in 1947. 1947. You ought to read the book by Hans, uh, not Morgenthau, forgotten his name. But anyway, the title of the book is Fragebogen. Yeah, Hans von Salomon. Uh, Fragebogen, which is merely questionnaire and the questionnaire is the paternal grandmother and all of that stuff, the denazification questionnaire they handed out, the Allied forces, and every German had to fill it out. And it's a satire on how ludicrous was that attempt to so-called denazify the Germans after World War II. No, I believe that if there were not a God, mankind itself would not survive much beyond the turn of the century. And I believe so. I know so, not because of biblical concepts at all, but because of the ability of scientists who have no political or no economic or no spiritual or religious axe to grind, of merely taking the temperature of mankind and of coming up with data. We know computer profiles. We know that you can make projections. We know that if trends and curves can be accurately measured in the past along a certain line that actually trace a certain definite series of, of... Per percentages, perhaps, or projections, I'm trying to say, for the future, that we can go out right on out on our chart and tell you pretty much what's going to happen five or ten years from now. Many people know what the nearness of the depletion of strategic materials in terms of plutonium, or I shouldn't say plutonium, but germanium, titanium, and some of the more rare materials. Much of the world's reserves of high-grade chromium come from Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe, and neighboring South Africa. And, of course, the United States is, because of various political overtones and people who are running for president and so on, probably going to join with Europe and all the other countries, especially the mother country, England, and one day completely lock out South Africa, which will then go the way of Zimbabwe and other nations and will become a single-party black majority, where black will then do exactly what they have done in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Zimbabwe, and many other nations. Where there is racism of a kind that we have never seen in the United States of America, where whole tribes have been subjected to absolute genocide. There are practically no Wattuis left, the Ebos and the houses who wage war against each other, black against black, and you could no more tell them apart than I can. but they can. They know who they are. And that is another subject for another sermon, but nevertheless, it is important because that is a part of Israel. And the way they are going to suffer and the way they are going to enter the Great Tribulation will be somewhat different than the way we will do so in the United States. The Australians, for different purposes, will have to deal with the Japanese and with the Asians. The South Africans with the indigenous black populations. And the United States with Europe and Japan. You watch. I could haul out, if I had them with me, articles including front page articles on the Plain Truth magazine in the early 1960s. In the late 1950s, when I had an article called Japan, Future Super Giant," no one seemed to believe it or understand it. Do you understand who are the two most powerful economies in the world today? West Germany and Japan, far more powerful than the United States. Who is the world's worst debtor that owes more to everybody than any other country, including Brazil? We are. The United States. How long will the nations of West Germany and Europe together with West Germany and the common market and Japan remain economic giants and political dwarfs? How long will the one who is their debtor tell the creditor what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, and where to get off? How long will the United States pretend it has the status of empire and crack the whip on the little yellow people of Japan? before they react, even in a conventional sense. In the 1960s, the early 60s, I predicted the Japanese would eventually have a world-class navy that would surpass anything the United States of America can put to sea. That I believe will happen in less than ten years. The rumblings are already there. The Tanaka government is virtually out, going to be overthrown as a result of the trade wars and rumblings between tariffs and surcharges and probably eventually outright embargoes. And so the Japanese are going to put in a little more of a militaristic government, and more money is going to be diverted to defense. The Japanese are the world's leading shipbuilder. We're behind Finland. At last time I looked, we were 15th in the world. And we're a great maritime nation with two huge oceans on our borders, and yet we are lagging behind tiny Finland and putting ships to sea. But we're a service-oriented economy now. We've gone for blue jeans and hot dogs, and rock records, and drive in everything and a mobile America seeing it all and having fun and living our life in the sun. We don't know how to work. We don't know how to produce. Our 25 to 44 age workforce in the United States cannot compete with the Germans or the Japanese. You do not see in a Ford plant in Ypsilanti 18,000 workmen gathering beneath a raised platform where a man stands up there and shouts American slogans. You don't see them for a half hour doing everything from running in place to deep deep knee bends and twenty push-ups you don't see them screaming out America first or God bless America or singing the national anthem and with tears streaming down their cheeks rushing into the factory to put the nation back on its feet and actually wage war, as it were, to give them the good life and to give their millions of citizens all of the various goods, the food, clothing, and shelter, the luxuries, and the things they've always wanted to enjoy. But you see that in Japan where thousands of workers... Outside of the factories that are labeled Nissan or Datsun or whatever, Kawasaki or uh, Toyota, are screaming three great huge bonsais following about a half hour of calisthenics. Did you see the documentary a couple of months ago? Did anybody see it at the school for young Japanese executives who were going back to be CEOs of the various corporations or the kind of training they went through? That was absolutely frightening. That was the kind of training you would never have found anywhere in the United States with one exception, and that is in the Marine Corps training camps at Quantico and in San Diego in the worst part of the first part of World War II in 1942 and 3, where a DI could get away with the kind of brutalization of a young man that those teachers got away with on those young Japanese executives. I've never seen the like in my life. Where a grown man with a career behind him is trying to be completely remade in the mold of a kind of an effective manager or executive, got down to his knees when he had been told he failed his course, and was weeping with his arms around the ankles of his instructor, and beating himself on the chest. The guy was a candidate for Harakiti. he was going to go out and slice it. He wasn't going to stay alive much longer, I should imagine. I never saw such passion, such emotion. In the way those people were training, corporate executives looked like an officer's training corps. For the marines or the navy in the old imperial japanese military establishment it was unbelievable but it's the way those people think when they go in there to build those semiconductors they go in there to fight they go, they go in there to exceed to excel to compete and we might call it dumping but when you make superior equipment and you undercut the competition by selling it to them more cheaply when you can take iron from the united states and ship it on Volkswagen ships all the way to the Kiel Canal and put it on Volkswagen barges and turn it into Volkswagens and bring it back and sell it, or if you can take that same metal and take it all the way to West Germany in the canal system, make it into barbed wire, bring it back aboard a ship and sell it in Houston for less money than American barbed wire, there's something wrong somewhere. But they've been able to do it. We were just commenting today because we rented one of these minivans and it took all these years for Detroit to catch on to what Volkswagen was doing. They had the little bugs running up and down our streets in the 1950s. And you know how cheap they were in those days now because of the falling dollar. People are hating that as a good thing. Maybe it is temporarily, but you watch in the years to come. Well, back to my subject. I don't want to go on and on and on here. One of the most important verses in the Bible is Luke 21, 36, where at the end of the prophecy involving the Great Tribulation, Jesus said, Watch you, therefore, and pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, I should have said 21.36, I hope I did, in Luke, the 21st chapter, verse 36, and to stand before the Son of Man. That was at the conclusion of the Olivet Prophecy, when Jesus said, You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, but before that he said, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, and that coincides exactly with the first seal of Revelation, the sixth chapter, the first horsemen of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is false Christ and false prophets. Even Bullinger's Companion Bible puts it together, so that the step-by-step unfolding of the events of Matthew 24, the Olivet Prophecy, are what reveals to you the first six seals of the book of Revelation and the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, which are false Christ and false prophets, wars, then drought and famine, and finally the Great Tribulation and the martyrdom of saints. Jesus said after saying that Jerusalem was going to again be destroyed, talking about a great false prophet and the beast power, watch you therefore and pray always for a twofold reward that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are going to come to pass and in addition to that to stand before the Son of Man, spiritual salvation. So there is physical protection Christ talked about and spiritual salvation that Christ talked about, both. The reason we chose for the title of our magazine, Watch, is because that is exactly what we believe we are set to do. And I would urge you to get a booklet, if we don't have any here, it's an older one that we have plenty of copies of, entitled The Work of the Watchman, as to what we conceive our job to be in warning and preaching a witness to our peoples of the United States, of Britain, and the Commonwealth nations, and to some degree, To Northwestern Europe. Now back to what I mentioned recently in those three sources. A week ago, Tuesday, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal was a short little article, a longer article inside, and the little article said this. You can go back and look at it if you would like. That the Pope in West Germany, during his visit there just a week and a half ago, called for, quote, a United States of Europe from the Urals to the Atlantic Wall. Do you know where the Urals are? Have you looked at a map of Europe lately? The Urals are way over there, practically into Russia. We're talking about some 250 million people from Poland completely to France. Exactly the very terms that I have used for over 33 and one half years, from the Urals to the Atlantic Wall. How many times have I said it? Because that embodies all of those nations and races that anciently were together under the Habsburgs and Otto the Great and Charlemagne and down to the time of even the subjugation, if not the cooperation, in large extent some of them just gave up, like Anschluss with Austria, like Hungary and Romania did in large extent, but also some of them that were occupied and forced to cooperate because there were hundreds of thousands of Czechs and of Romanians and Hungarians in Hitler's army, as you may well know if you studied World War II history. So the United States of Europe that is going to emerge is, in effect, the ten toes of Daniel It is, in effect, the ten horns of the ten kings of Revelation, the 17th chapter. The beast is the great supranational military dictator, who I believe will be a German. The false prophet, I believe, is the pope at Rome. And I still believe the Vatican, at least in some temporary sense, is going to be removed and is going to be established in Jerusalem, which has been declared and has been called for by this this present pope. He wants it to become what is called a corpus separatum, In the Latin, or in other words, an open or a separate internationalized city, so that in the event of any outbreak of new hostilities in the Middle East, those areas that are called most sacred by the three great monolithic religions of the world would escape destruction in Jerusalem. The Pope envisions, using his good offices, to be the savior of the city of Jerusalem with its sacred places that the Catholics have, and so on. I believe you're going to see, in the next ten years or so, the disintegration of NATO, the gradual lessening of the hold of Russia on the Warsaw Pact nations. A secret non aggression pact negotiated between a new emerging United States of Europe with the Soviet Union to guard Europe's back door. Increased hostility, tension, anxiety, frustration, and difficulty between the United States of America, which is going to enter a terrible, devastating economic repression or recession or depression, whatever you want to call it, from which Europe will not escape but which is going to result in the impoverishment of the American people. That is going to, in turn, bring about, once again, the overthrow of stable, quote-unquote, pro-American governments, and the emergence of despots and dictators inside of Europe and elsewhere, including Mexico, Central and South America, where Nazism and fascism is alive and well. Many people are very concerned about Mexico going communist. Don't be. It will go ultra-right-wing nationalist. Now it may go, quote, communist in the sense that some people don't know that communism and ultra-rightism form a circle and meet somewhere in the middle. And there are so-called Marxist dictatorships, which are just exactly that. As in Machel, who died in a plane crash with his successor in Mozambique, and other nations in South America, where they're allegedly Marxist, but they're actually nothing more than ultra-right-wing nationalistic dictators using a Marxist economic philosophy. You're going to see that happen. And the United States of Europe is going to be increasingly hostile toward the United States of America, 250 million people from the Urals to the Atlantic wall. And I see there something very mysterious about the five toes on one side and the five on the other. And so I see that very likely you're going to have the two Germanys reunited and then some of the other countries of Europe like Italy and France, and perhaps Spain, perhaps Belgium, I'm not sure how many of them, and some of the countries of the other side of Europe, such as Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Poland and Romania, and who knows how many of them, I mean how, how all of them will, will come into uh, this association together, but there are going to be ten primary ones in nature or together that are going to have an autocratic or a military dictator or an absolute monarch, a ruler of some kind over them. I mentioned the Europe magazine you may not have seen. this like the Wall Street Journal makes offerings, you'll see some of the big ads in the Wall Street Journal about various economic offerings, of bond issues, of stocks and so on. These are trading in the ECU. 350 million ECU, that's the new economic currency unit between the trading partners of Europe. It stands for Europe Comune Unie, but at the same time is a tiny little gold coin of ancient France. So it means the same thing together. It was named the ECU. But Europe Comune Unie is merely the French pronunciation of the United European Community. But that's not what I wanted to show you. What I wanted to show you was this article. I've heavily underlined here. Poll shows popular support of European Union. Two-thirds of Europeans are for a United States of Europe. Now, I've got the proof. I can go back and show you the old plain truth magazines. I've got hundreds of sermon tapes. i got hundreds of television tapes. Articles, letters, hundreds of sermon tapes from sermons just such as this today predicting a United States of Europe from the Urals to the Atlantic wall. I've got the proof that I said it three decades and more ago. How did I know? Because of biblical prophecy. Because of knowing where we are mentioned in the Bible. Because of being somewhat a student of history and of recent history. And somewhat a student of world affairs. Of visiting with some of these people, of talking to them, I've flown Franz Josef Strauss about country in the Falcon jet, and for his own kicks, took him down inside the Grand Canyon one time, and had him in my home and fed him a Texas breakfast of hotcakes. I won't go into that story; it's an interesting one. On the college campus in Big Sandy, Texas, I still believe he is a very likely candidate for a future can- for a future chancellor of Germany. He is called the bully of Bavaria and the gentleman of Bonn. He is very much for a United States of Europe, a reunified Germany. And you're going to see Europe reunified as well as Germany reunified in your immediate lifetime. You can watch for it. It's going to happen. Now, what does that mean? Why is that bad? Because of all these other factors I've talked about, primarily beginning with trade war, primarily beginning on the economic front, There is going to come a new hostility between the United States and Japan and the United States and a future U.S. of Europe. It's going to come to open clashes, and eventually it's going to come to outright war. And biblical prophecy predicts, to give it to you in a nutshell, that eventually because of God's pronounced punishments on our people, if we do not individually and collectively repent and come to our senses and begin to obey God's laws, not the least of which is his Sabbath day, that this nation is destined for the greatest debacle, the greatest destruction in the history of the world, worse than anything that happened to the Jews in World War II. The book of Ezekiel, the first several chapters, describe a full third of our citizens dying in the initial military onslaught. But by the time that happens, a full third of us, it projects, will be dead as a result of disease epidemics. And when I see things not only like other diseases, that are endemic among us, with 92 million Americans with some registered form of chronic disease, of heart disease, multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, of Parkinson's disease, of this Alzheimer's disease, of so many diseases of the elderly, as well as the diseases of the young, and now this new hideous thing of AIDS, and the fact that I was kicked off WGN for making a statement about homosexuals, and there may be some of their ilk, the so-called closet queens in a very uh, structure of the radio station, for all I know, and so God's message was blanked out of a part of this country, 274 cities and towns, now do not get it as a result of me saying that God will not prevent rotten homosexuals from contracting AIDS in dirty sleazy bathhouses, and they wouldn't play that program and absolutely refuse to renew our contract. I'm still going to say it. I don't care where I say it. God will not prevent rotten, filthy homosexuals from contracting AIDS in dirty sleazy bathhouses. Because the book of Romans, the first chapter, says they receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was fitting, meaning that man-made diseases are now bursting upon the world scene because as you sow, so shall you reap, says the eternal. And these rotten sodomites are reaping a horrible, horrible penalty, but the hideous part is it's spilling over into the straight community. People who would never think of committing that kind of a sin, and they're going to suffer and die with it as a result. 20% of the American population by 20 hundred. Everything I've told you here today is true. These are facts, known curves, trends and conditions. Now, my final question to you is, do you think very many people in the United States of America have heard that kind of a warning? How many people do you think walking the streets of Charleston today know what I'm saying to you? How many people do you think in our society are going to hail the creation of the United States of Europe? as a good thing. Well, naturally they will. They're going to say, look, Russia is retreating from Eastern Europe. That's fantastic. These countries are getting together. The old antagonisms of Europe going to war won't happen anymore. The Franco-German problem is settled. The German-Poland question is settled. These nations won't be going at it anymore like they have for hundreds of years in Europe and causing wars all over the world. Now they're going to cooperate. It's wonderful. We'll trade with them. It'll be marvelous. The United States will aid and abet and help in every way we possibly can to encourage the creation of the United States of Europe. They will even say, look, they're beginning to pick up their share of the defense burden. They've been able to dwell under the American nuclear um, umbrella, and they've been able to to send only 1% or 2% of their GNP to defense. Now they'll have to put 10 12 15% like we do. And the Japanese are going to say the same thing. Well, I guess we better begin to take up a little more of our our own defense burden. So we better put to sea to defend our very vulnerable lifelines because we're a bicycle economy. We get potash from Chile. We get oil from the Middle East. We get our iron and tin and rubber and all the other vital materials in some of the country because we're an island nation like people living on a ship. So therefore, the only means of our survival are to protect our lifelines. We're like a big throbbing heart with our arteries exposed. And a way to protect those is by huge, big, Japanese aircraft carriers and missile cruisers with the latest super sophisticated Japanese technology. By the way, later this year the Japanese are going to launch a satellite. And by the way, they already have double supersonic jet fighters. And by the way, they have a higher per capita ratio of telephones and television sets in their their homes than we do. And by the way, they are a much stronger economy than we are. No, the things I'm telling you are true. And they are going to happen. Now, I didn't ask you to come here today to ask you to join something, but I do want to tell you before I quit, that there is something in which you can become involved. We do have a local church that meets. You will hear an announcement about that. I want to extend an invitation to you, because sometimes you may hear a sermon tape if you come from Tyler, Texas. Mr. Ronald Dart, who conducted a seminar here this morning, or myself, and we have literally hundreds, literally hundreds of full sermons on dozens and dozens of subjects. The soul, heaven, hell, the judgment, the rapture, the resurrection, some of the, the holidays of the world, history in the Bible, biblical prophecy, uh, family living, health, matters that are of concern to people, and you can have them absolutely free. You write for a list, if you would like, of the tape-recorded sermons that we have. And if there's any particular subject in which you're interested, a question you've got that is of theological importance to you, maybe something in which you can't understand, you don't agree, you can't see why we believe this or that the way we do. Ask for a sermon on it as well as literature on it. It's absolutely free of charge. You can have it by special subject. Now, we do have a meeting, and I would like to invite you to attend one week from today or the next week, whenever you can. And if you do, here's what I want to stress. You do not check your brains at the door. You do not place in jeopardy your personal integrity, your sovereignty, or what you believe. The people are going to meet there, probably sitting around here among you today, and they're not going to own you or possess you or take anything from you. There's going to be no collection here today, and there will not be, and there never has been, in the history of our private church services. We take up an offering seven times a year on the annual festivals because we read that we should in Deuteronomy 16:16, 16, 16, and that's the only time we ever do, and then only those who voluntarily want to give are asked to do so. Otherwise, never In 33 and a half years have I ever requested money on the radio or television, never in these personal appearance campaigns, and not even in our own local church services. So if you come, what I'm saying is you don't place yourself in jeopardy. You're not compromised. You can walk out of there with your personal integrity intact, with everything you believe still whole and intact, and you're not in any way jeopardized. So just come as a visitor and see what they do, and all they do is some announcements, probably and hopefully some music just like you're used to in some other church you might have attended and probably some of the same old familiar songs and then a brief introductory prayer and a sermon maybe a tape from Tyler and maybe one of the gentlemen who might be there from time to time and it'll be on subjects in which you will be very, very interested and you'll meet some very fine people I would like to invite you to do so I don't want to come all the way to Charleston and then go away and say well it was nice having those folks there but we never saw them again or they all go so I'm going to invite you to take part in that at least. There are two corporate structures, there is the Church of God International and then there is the Evangelistic Association that bears my name, which is the founder and the promoter, the supporter of the television programs and the literature programs so that people who feel that they are members of another church of all of their lives and so on may feel free to help support the Evangelistic Association without compromising their church affiliation. And that's why we set that up the way we did and I'll make that very, very clear right up front with you. So thank you for for coming here today. I hope it hasn't been boring. I hope that I've given you something of value you can take home with you and remember in the months and the years to come when your newspapers are going to tell you that some of the things I've said here today are actually happening. Please remain seated for just a moment. And uh, Mr. Charlie Gross has a couple of parting comments.